Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. You are listening to A History of Israeli Folk Music and Dance with guest speaker Jonathan Maimon. It's my honor to introduce our guest presenter this Shabbat afternoon, Jonathan Maimon. He's a film director. His first film, Journey from Tunisia, is about his family's emigration from Tunisia to Israel and was selected to play at um, film festivals in Los Angeles and New York and Chicago and screened in shuls in London and Europe. Uh, when he's not working on film, and you're about to hear about the film he's working on now, you can find him attending music shows, designing mobile apps and websites, and playing tennis. It's our honor to have Jonathan Maimon with us this afternoon. Okay, thank you, everyone. Um, do you know if there were any printouts that can make this a little more interactive? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll hold for a sec. Uh, I want to make this a little more... Yes. <laughs> We want to make this a little more interactive, so uh, the printouts will allow you to experience a little more of um, what I'm working on. So maybe I'll just, while people are getting settled in, um, I'll, I'll give a little bit of an intro for who I am and, and the project I'm working on now. Um, so as mentioned by the rabbi, my name is Jonathan Maiman. I'm a film director, and we're about 11 months into a new film that I'm working on called, uh, tentatively called I Hear You, which is going to be the first film about Israeli folk music and dance and the history. And the premise of the film is there's a band in Northern California that regularly plays this kind of music at simchas, at weddings, bar mitzvahs, holiday celebrations. Um, <laughs> and um, they'll, they'll come with me to Israel and we'll meet the last surviving generation of Israeli folk musicians who are in their 80s and 90s today. Um, so that's the film. And later after Havdalah, we'll, we'll talk more about that. But for now, um, we're going to focus on uh, Israeli folk music and dancing and specifically look at a song called Mayim Mayim, which many of you may be familiar with. Um, for those who probably know, it's... Uh, Mayim is water in Hebrew. Um, and actually, the, the, the official title is Yushafta Mayim. Um, but it's popularly known as Mayim Mayim. And this is a song that I think is uh, interesting on a number of levels, which we'll, we'll get to in a moment. Okay. Um, so I don't know uh, the ages of, of everyone here, but uh, this was published in 1946 in Tel Aviv. This was a guide to um, how to do this new dance, relatively new dance. I came out of Israel and was then distributed across the world. Um, so if you go to the, the first page here on the back left, you can see, and for folks on the Zoom, that's what it looks like. Um, yes, yeah, I think it's before it, it became the official Mayim step, which anyone taking beginner Israeli dance would, would learn maybe in the first or second class. Um, but you can see, yeah, grapevine, before, um, you know, we had the internet and videos, there was a very specific step-by-step -step drawing and guide for how to do these dances. Yes, very, very extensive. So um, this would get printed and, and, you know, sent to New York and all over. Um, and so uh, if, if I could have a volunteer, I'd love someone to read on page three, the first paragraph that just says, uh, the history and the history of this dance. This is a real kibbutz creation of the new Jewish Palestine. 
The dance was born in Dekania, mother of the Kavutsot, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. From there, if it found its way, born by the youth, to Kiryat Avanim, Anavim, in the hills of Jerusalem, where it underwent some changes in development. At the first folk dance meeting at Dahlia in the summer of 1994, it met with an enthusiastic response on the part of kibbutz dancers from all over Palestine. They quickly learned the new dance and brought it home to their own kibbutzim. Now it is being danced from Dan to Beersheba, from Ramim to Gavulot. In this dynamic dance, you feel the eternal rhythm of the waves, the movement of water drawing from the well, and above all, the supreme joy in finding water that revives the desert. The facile and beautiful form of the dance makes it possible to perform it as a mass dance. Thank you for that. So as you can tell from the last paragraph, um, the, the dance steps themselves and the movement of the dance uh, was very much done to mimic uh, the flow of water. And as kind of, if, if folks know the dance towards the middle, you kind of come in and you do this, it's almost like a fountain, something gushing, um, you, you know, the, the, way, the way water would, would um, appear. And so the, the dance itself was very much designed to mimic uh, intentionally what finding water in the desert after a seven year search. So that's a little bit about the dance, but um, actually before we get into the music of it, there's a little bit of controversy or um, it was not known who created the dance for about 40 years. So the dance was first created in 1937, um, but the, um, the owner of the dance, so to speak, the original choreographer wasn't revealed until 1972. And it's a very interesting story. So I'm going to read this um, short article or letter to the editor called The Origins of Mayim Mayim. Um, for back story or context, in 1972, uh, the Jerusalem Post published a um, overview of Garit Kadman. Uh, for folks who do Israeli dancing, they might recognize that name. She's considered the mother of Israeli folk dance. Um, so this is a letter after this publication was done about Garid Kadman. Um, I refer to Dora uh, Soden's very interesting report about folk dancers, December 3rd, and permit myself to refresh the memory of, quote, the mother of folk dance, and state that I created the dance, Mayim Mayim, and stage it together with Yehuda Sharit on the occasion of the water festival at Nan when water was found there after a seven-year search. We took this dance to many kibbutzim in the Emek and Jordan Valley in the late 30s, and from there it was adapted by many new kibbutzim around the country. I was also present at the first dance festival at Dalia in 1944, and at that time I pointed out to Garid Kadman, whose life work for the development of folk dance I appreciate very much, that my name was missing from the printed program of the dance performed there. And get this, her answer was that this was a great compliment to me, because the first Israeli folk dance was born thus. In other words, when the choreographer becomes anonymous. At that time, I accepted the compliment at face value. So you can imagine my surprise to read that Garit Kadman had said she did this dance at Dahlia in 1944. And the, um, the journalist followed up with uh, Garit Kadman, and this is the response. Uh, since my article appeared, Garit Kadman has written to me, um, 
praising the article, saying that my mind was not her dance, but was anonymous from the beginning. This is not what I remember hearing from her when I interviewed her, but I may have misheard amidst the music and dancing and drumming. Um, so it's interesting story. So the, the choreographer of this dance was a woman named Elsa Dublin, um, and it was, it was done in 1937. Um, but to, to share a little more about uh, Garit Kadman, who's considered the, the mother of Israeli folk dancing, and, and not to take anything away from her contribution to Israeli folk dance, uh, she was born in 1897 in Leipzig, Germany. And as a child, she was attracted to nature and folklore. Um, she joined the German youth movement, Wandervogel, which sought out Germany's cultural roots and folk expression. Um, at some point, uh, I think in the 20s, um, I don't have it in my notes, she did come to uh, Israel. And in 1944, it was a basically big year in Israel for the history of Israeli folk dancing and the influence of Kadman. Uh, that summer, she organized and staged a pageant for the Feast of Shavuot, Hag Habikurim, based on the Book of Ruth and it became the incentive for organizing a folk dance festival. And at that point, she saw an opportunity to begin a major undertaking to correct the lack of indigenous Israeli dances, an initiative that would reflect the return to three things, the land of Israel, to agriculture, and to biblical folk sources. And so that was sort of the um, driving force behind um, bringing in Israeli folk dancing. So I wanna get into the music side. So that was a little bit more about the dance. Uh, I'm not going to dance here on, on stage. There's probably better Israeli dancers in the audience. Um, but as you can see with the sheet, this is what the moves look like. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the music. If you guys, um, if you folks look at the next page um, for folks on Zoom, you can see it here. Uh, so I'll actually sing this very briefly. Um, and then we'll, we'll talk about it in a sec. Uh, and this tune should sound very familiar to everyone. Okay, so some very interesting things about this song. And First is the composer. At the top, you can see music E. Pugachev. Um, I, I was trying to research who's Pugachev because every name I saw said Amiran, Emmanuel Amiran. So who's Pugachev, who's Amiran? So at some point, he changed his name from Pugachev. And he was born in, um, in Warsaw to Ukrainian parents in 1909. And in 1924, so as a 15-year-old, um, he came to Palestine. Um, and he was sort of a savant or very uh, proficient, uh, successful composer. Uh, at age 12, he composed his first song, which was performed uh, to the poet Hayim Nachman Bialik, very famous poet, um, in his parents' house, I believe, in Odessa um, or Warsaw. And so he wrote Mayim Mayim in his mid-20s, in maybe 1936 or 1937. Uh, there's a few really interesting things about this song specifically um, that combine, and this really defines what Israeli folk music is about. There's elements from Eastern Europe, there's elements from the Bible, and there's elements from the Orient or the Middle East. And it's very evident in the song what those are. So for folks who know music, um, maybe I'll ask the audience, does anyone know what key this is written in? 
C minor, yeah, very nice, C minor. So it's written in a minor key, and that's often more associated with um, Eastern European melodies that are maybe more sad or longing or mournful. Um, and then the second thing is in the, the middle part, there's this really interesting section where it goes, ha, 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 ha. And that's not typically what you'd hear in Eastern European or Central European music. You know, Beethoven's Ninth doesn't have any like ha, ha, ha's in the middle. Um, and this is this sort of percussive rhythm and percussive sound is much more true about Middle Eastern music. Um, and so if you've ever seen like Yemenite dancing or, or heard Yemenite music, it's far more percussion based. And so uh, Pugachev or Amiran was trying to replicate that or put elements of that into the song to make it quote Israeli. And then third is this is a biblical uh, verse and you can see it here at the bottom from Isaiah, therefore with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. So a combination of those three factors really give it the essence or the formula of Israeli folk music. Um, so this song survives today because of the dance. So I, I talked earlier about, I'm doing a film on Israeli folk music and dance. They're very much interrelated. You can't tell the story of one without telling the story of the other. Uh, Pugachev Amiran, he wrote 600 songs, but only a couple kind of, you know, are still listened to today. And this is probably the best known one. And that's because this dance is taught to, to young children and any beginner uh, Israeli folk dance class. Um, and in fact, uh, Mayim Mayim is actually a very interesting song because it is very popular and well known in Asia. So no one would maybe have guessed that. But in the 1950s, what's that? Uh, in Japan and Taiwan specifically. Um, so in, in 1957, there was a, um, uh, basically the allies who were uh, still very much involved in, in the rebuilding of Japan um, brought a, um, a prominent square and folk dancer named Ricky Holden, who was not Jewish, um, but he visited Israel on this world tour. And after visiting Israel, at some point later went to Japan and he needed to teach all these school children a simple dance that was easy to learn um, and that kind of helped fill the recreational dance time that they had. And so he taught Mai Mayim. So every Japanese school child basically learned Mai Mayim. And as those children, you know, grew up and in the 80s, as Japan was exporting their culture through video games and through um, anime, you hear this song very often in many different video games and anime. Um, and so it's a very interesting thing. And actually um, in Taiwan, Israeli folk dancing is, is quite popular um, of, of all places. And it was this single trip that effectively the Americans helped organize that, um, that led Mayim Mayim to be maybe the, the first Israeli folk global phenomenon. Um, now, this is just one song. There's other songs, obviously, Haba Nagila is another very well-known folk song um, that was written in Israel. Um, I'm not going to go too much into it. If folks are interested, there's a fantastic movie called Haba Nagila, which was uh, directed and produced by a woman, Roberta Grossman, in 2012. And it talks about the song starting in Ukraine, getting written in Israel, and then becoming, again, a global phenomenon. Like, you hear it at hockey games, and you hear it at all these other places. So. That's another example of how Israeli folk music has these roots in Eastern Europe, 
was penned or written in Israel and then exported throughout the world and still heard very much today. Um, so that's on Israeli folk music. If folks want to look at the final page, there are um, some biblical passages. I figured I'm presenting this at a synagogue. I should bring up uh, the Bible. Um, yeah, I think we have we have time. So if another volunteer could read uh, from the book of Samuel, David and Saul's service. It's in English. It's not Hebrew. I'm not asking anyone to read the All Hebrew. Right. So. Uh, David in Saul's service from the first book of Samuel, chapter 16, verses 14 through 23. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendants said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the lyre. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes to you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. One of the servants answered, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the lyre. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is a fine looking man and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me your son, David, who is with the sheep. So Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them with his son, David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse saying, allow David to remain in my service for I am pleased with him. Whenever the spirit from God came on Saul, David would take up his lyre and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better and the evil spirit would leave him. So what is, uh, what is this biblical wisdom saying about the power of music? It makes everything better, right? And uh, I was just curious, and I looked at the, the New Testament to see, you know, was music reflected in, in kind of um, the Christian holy book? And in fact, it's, it's almost very seldom mentioned, whereas in Judaism, we hear these clues and these uh, stories that talk about the power that music has. And I think, um, you know, for anyone in this room, obviously, this intuitively makes sense. Um, but it was really interesting to see how music's been part of our, our Jewish history for thousands and thousands of years. Um, and, uh, has, what's that? As has depression and, uh, evil spirits and anxiety. So, you know, it's all, it's all, it's all in this book, you know, it's all in this book, but I thought that was interesting. Um, and then there's, uh, another, um, passage here from, from Chronicles. Uh, about bringing the ark to the temple, if uh, if we could get a third volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> the priests then withdrew from the holy place. All the priests who were there had consecrated themselves, regardless of their divisions. All the Levites who were musicians, Asaph, Heman, Yedatun, and their sons and relatives stood on the east side of the altar, dressed in fine linen and playing cymbals, harps, and lyres. They are accompanied by 120 priests sounding trumpets. The trumpeters and musicians joined in unison to give praise and thanks to the Lord, 
Accompanied by trumpets, cymbals, and other instruments, the singers raised their voices in praise to the Lord and sang, He is good, his love endures forever. Then the temple of the Lord was filled with the cloud, and the priests could not perform the service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple of God. That's from 2 Chronicles 5, 11 through 14. Uh, yeah, thank you for that. And this is, I think, an even more power. So music has the power to heal, which you saw in the first passage. This is the power to bring divine presence into, into our world. And I think that's a really powerful uh, quote. And obviously, today, we don't really play with lyres and symbols in, in the, the synagogue. Um, but in some ways, music is a way to bring, um, you know, divinity to, to our lives. And uh, in a sense, much like you saw with, with my mime, it's a way of connecting uh, the Bible with, you know, modern, modern instruments and, and making it uh, relevant. I, I think for us, uh, someone asked me earlier, why are you doing this project? Why Israeli folk music? And it's, it's deeper than just the last 75 years of Israel. This music really goes back um, to our, our culture and our heritage and our tradition as Jews. Um, and so that's why it's very important to try to document this and, and understand where these songs came from and who these people were who created these songs and dances. And uh, later this year in Israel, we'll have a chance to meet some of these people. So thank you for that. I hope that was interesting. Um, I'll take maybe a question or two if there's time. Potentially, if I can get it um, arranged, then Carmel's August 1st through 3rd. It's a, for folks who don't know, it's a big dance festival in Israel. Yeah, so horror is actually, uh, I believe, a Romanian word, and all the Balkan countries have different variations of that word. I think in Russia, they call it the horo, and in Bulgaria, they say the horo. So it, it comes from Eastern Europe, but you got to imagine most of the early settlers before 1948 came from there. So they needed something, so they borrowed the folk dance traditions that they learned when they were teenagers in, in Eastern Europe. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So the first Israeli folk dance was something called Hora Agadati, which was written in 1924. And Hava Nagila, the song that most people kind of know today, although it's not necessarily a, a folk dance in, in the way that you would learn Hava Nagila if you go Israeli folk dancing, was written in uh, 1925. But um, some parts of it were written in 1918, according to some sources, based on um, celebration of after the, the Balfour Declaration was made public. So um, so there was stuff uh, earlier from the 20s, and I'm sure there was more, but very little of it made it to the present day. So um, my mime's one of the earliest because it comes from the 1930s. Uh, probably not. Oh, uh, the question was, is the film going to cover the present day? And no, there's, there's too much to try to cover in 80 to 90 minutes. It's a question here. I, when I went back to Iran, all the students at university were asking me, what did I learn? I mean, I gave the information, the conferences about the kibbutzim, Shavim, everything. But then the best way for me was to teach them Hava Nagila. And actually, all the university students, they were in a strike and doing things. In our faculty, everybody was dancing Hava Nagila. <laughs> and the Japanese I know who were with us, they um, made the kibbutzim in Japan, and it was a very successful wow. program. I don't know if they danced, but they 
Wow. Okay. So the kibbutzim concept as well, it sounds like you're yeah, saying was brought to Japan. Very successful because the Afri, I was with group uh, Afro-Asiatic and the African Latin Americans, the Africans tried, everybody tried a little bit, but Japanese were the best. <laughs> okay. <laughs> very interesting. Thanks for sharing. Um, maybe one more. Hi, I have a comment on Zoom. Oh, okay. Yep. Go ahead. Go ahead. Hi. Yes. I'm Roseanne. And um, yeah, I'm interested to see your film when it comes out. And I wanted to mention, uh, I wanted to see if you're familiar with the postcard project. Uh, no, I'm not. Um, it's closely related to what you're doing. Um, even before the state, uh, some Zionist organizers contacted composers in all different countries and the composers contributed on postcards songs, words, and music so that when all these diverse immigrants from all over got to Israel they would they would be able to sing together and of course eventually dance together um i don't know if the rabbi is still there but uh, yeah i'd like to call that to his attention too now do you know who michael isaacson is um i don't think so well, you're too young michael isaacson uh is one of the premier composers of jewish liturgical music of the 20th century and um, he actually has a whole presentation uh, that I saw at the institution formerly known as the UJ. And Michael lives uh, in Florida now. He moved from the, the San Fernando Valley to Florida, but it would make a great program for the show. It would have to be Zoom but it's, it, it's really, really good. And some of the most familiar songs, and some of these composers were composers that we know from popular music. Hi, Rabbi. Uh, noted, noted. Okay. Thank you, Roseanne. Yeah, that's it. Oh, oh yes, one more question. Uh, let's get the microphone to him. Good evening. My, my question is, uh, what is your inspiration? And is there a teacher, a choreographer, or summer camp experience or something that has inspired you to love and appreciate Israeli music and dance and, and why reason for you to make this movie? Yeah, a quick answer on that. And if she's listening, uh, my mom was a Jewish music teacher doing Jewish music for about 30, 40 years. Uh, my dad's Israeli, so but he's not a musician or a dancer. Uh, far from it on both counts. Um, so yeah, I guess the passion for Israel is on that side and the, the knowledge of music and, and dance and performances from the other side. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.